Welcome to Home Health in the Future. My name is Kaba Safavi. I'm Senior Managing Director at Accenture. And joining me in this conversation about a topic that I'm sure you'll all find very interesting and insightful is Larry Leisure, founder of Chicago Pacific Founders, and Sumit Nagpal, founder and CEO of Cherish Health. You'll learn a little bit about their perspectives. We're going to talk today about a phenomenon that we all experienced in 2020, which is the rapid movement of healthcare to the home. But what happened in the pandemic is really an interesting example of a movement that began for one reason and is now evolving for other reasons. We all know that it was impossible to get care in person. And during a period of time between February and May, about half of all healthcare visits were being conducted at a distance for safety. But prior to that, we had been talking about things like telemedicine and finding ways to deliver care at home for some time. Until that point in time, it had largely been because it was a patient preference. COVID made it the case because it was a necessity. But what we recognize increasingly is the problems of access and affordability, as well as patient preference, are all causing us to rethink the way care is delivered and asking the question, why do we have to go somewhere? Why can't care come to us? And today I want to discuss this topic in a little bit more detail, both from the perspective of an investor who is looking at all of the private money that's going into businesses that make care more location agnostic or more present at home. And an inventor, someone who's actually working at how it's possible to do more things at home. And I think between those two, we're gonna, we're, we will learn a little bit more about where this movement is going. What I think is really critical is that this is more than just about physical distance. In fact, once you break the need for physical proximity, and you think about healthcare being delivered, not just on a physical scale, but on a digital scale, it makes things like asynchronous care possible or one-to-many care providers to a patient or patients to a care provider possible. Uh, it also allows us to start thinking about ways of extending the reach of what can be done by healthcare providers in terms of gathering information, not just while you're in the office, but in a variety of settings. And fundamentally, it allows us to meet patients' needs because increasingly patients say they want healthcare on their own terms. So with that, let me start by asking Larry to introduce himself briefly. Larry, tell us a little bit about your perspective. And then I want you to talk a little bit about your views on why so much private equity and venture is moving into the category of companies that are trying to figure out how to make healthcare more location independent and more home-based. That includes technology companies, but also companies that are focusing on bringing physical care to the home. Larry? Uh, thanks, Kaveh. It's great to be with you all today. Uh, in terms of my background, it's probably important to understand that to understand some of the comments I'm about to make. But I have the benefit of having been on many sides of the equation. Uh, I've worked for a big integrated delivery system, Kaiser Permanente, largest health plan, United Healthcare, but also advised some of the largest employers uh, in the country when I was at Towers Parent, now Willis Towers Watson. And now as a private equity investor and former venture capitalist, uh, this is an exciting time for us. Uh, we've seen an explosion, obviously, in innovation in bringing care more efficiently to patients, leveraging both synchronous and asynchronous care. Uh, it's not surprising the venture community and the private equity community is interested here. Not only are there significant benefits in bringing new technologies to bear that improve patient care and do it at a lower cost, but as an operator, uh, Chicago Pacific Founders are 
our private equity firm, invests in care delivery itself. We're constantly looking for ways to deliver that care more effectively, uh, more cost, you know, efficiently and cost effectively. And we're also looking for ways to more effectively engage the consumer. Lots of people focus on convenience. They focus on affordability. One of the most exciting things that we're seeing is the increased engagement of the patient, engagement of the patient longitudinally. As we think about, for example, asynchronous care, one of the things we're finding is that our provider groups are finding they can build a more longitudinal relationship with the patient, particularly using things like remote patient monitoring as a way to constantly monitor the status of the patient, identify uh, adverse trends that may be quite relevant. So we see this as something that's going to be increasingly important um, to our portfolio companies. Now, we still have some problems to work out. We still have to work out uh, how do we line uh, you know, reimbursement. And now certainly there's RPM codes uh, you know, that exist in Medicare, but we've got to figure out how are we going to make the math work. Uh, we have to figure out how do we actually integrate into workflow. And that's harder than you might think, Tabe, uh, and getting uh providers and people that support providers to change the way they do business um particularly in an organized environment so um uh we're excited we see it accelerating and begin because this is the new normal i don't think it's going to change anytime soon so hope that helps and larry if you think about it from a, a fundamental business case perspective do you look at these businesses and think about the value proposition primarily in terms of concepts like access and experience or more like affordability or something else as the real driver that's going to give these businesses momentum? Um, well, it depends whether it's fee-for-service or value-based. Uh, in a value-based environment, for example, really focuses, really driving, uh, is it a measurable improvement that we're driving in efficiency? So we're we driving better engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we doing a more effective job in managing uh, or avoiding uh, unnecessary admissions, et cetera? Uh, fee-for-service, it's a different different issue. Are we creating a, 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 a more of a longitudinal revenue stream for a provider? So yes, it's really all of the above, Kabe. We try to drive. The patient experience is really at the center of this. It only works if you're engaging uh, the patient more effectively and you're also engaging the care delivery partner in that process. So, but it's really all of the above. So I think that's a really good comment on your part. And some of these companies, some of the companies are focused primarily on just a digital solution. You made the point that you look at companies that actually have care delivery. We're seeing more and more people thinking about actually sending physical services to the home. Um, as you look at that that sort of blend, how do you weigh those, and do you have a preference for one or the other? Yeah, actually, there it, it is no one size fits all. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point. There's a very interesting company in the physical therapy space called Luna PT, and Luna delivers physical therapy to the home, and it really brings to it brings a combination of both technology that would come out of Uber, where you can optimally route private, you know, physical therapists to the home. You can take advantage of the gig economy. You know, you can do, you know, digital uh, to um, uh, uh, to enable the interaction and scheduling uh, and, and recording uh, the, the PT's notes, for example. And then you can also combine that 
with other solutions like Hinge or Sword that are delivering a pure digital solution. So I think the answer is you're going to see it's not going to be pure digital. I think it's going to be a hybrid. And I think Luna is a really good example. You're bringing together both the digital, but also in this case, the after laying on a pants, if you will, in the home of a physical therapist. And, and my last question before I switch over to Summit is, um, as a pure venture capitalist, do you think you're looking for a unicorn or do you think that the real path here is companies that end up being acquired or subsumed by other companies? Well, the answer is it's going to be both. I, I think that uh, predominantly it's going to be acquisition. So they're building a unique capability that enables the more effective delivery of care. Uh, and, you know, that's you know, typically going to be rolled up into, you know, a United Healthcare or one of those other big subsuming right. entities. But there's plenty of room for unicorns. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, uh, Hinge, I think, was valued at $3 billion, as an example, you know, by Tiger Global. So, I mean, uh, I think you're going to see both. Um, right. there's, lots of there's, lots of, there's lots of outcomes, Kaveh, which is what we're looking for, as yeah. you know. And I'd say you wouldn't be a venture capitalist if you didn't believe unicorns exist. So <laughs> You're absolutely right. right. Yeah. Uh, Summit, uh, you have, as a founder, discovered or thought very deeply about what the unmet needs are at home if we really want to try to make care available to people on their own terms. Talk a little bit about your perspective and what you're doing with Cherished Health in terms of what's possible at home. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Um, and, and thanks for uh, having me on this panel. Uh, Kavi and Larry, so great to see you again. And um, and this this interview is essentially a microcosm of, of the moment. I'm doing this in the backseat of a vehicle. That's why my, my camera is jiggling around. Uh, but that's not... Um, the... You know, I'll, by by way of introduction, Sumit Nagpal, CEO, co-founder of Cherish Health. Um, my entire career has been spent building digital health companies. Um, this is company five. And with this company, you know, Kaveh, to your point, what we're focused on is solving um, the last mile problem of how do you bring care to where people live, work, play, but then going one very fundamentally important step beyond, which is, you know, all this technology, all these services ultimately don't matter and they don't produce the outcomes and the results that people hope for if they don't get used and adopted. Um, adoption for the longest time has been a, a topic of, you know, patient engagement. How do you get patients to change behavior to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do? And our thesis is that that's really a losing thought. That if you're going to try to achieve change at scale, you're and you're counting on people changing behavior at scale, that that's going to be a uh, a, a tough battle, um, to to say to say the least. And so our approach at Cherish Health really is to come up with technologies that people don't have to think about or remember to you, technologies that are embedded in their homes and daily lives, um, ambient, so to speak, and that give us signal as they go about their lives on a daily basis, that tells us that there's rising risk, allows us to find out before an ambulance ride, before an emergency room admission, 
that someone's deteriorating, that someone's on their way down, and to then be able to do something about it. So Cherish Health is founded on, on that premise that, um, of course, healthcare is coming home. But to make healthcare work in the home, we need to get ahead of the problem that healthcare looks to solve, which is we know that someone is now sick and they're in front of us, the episodic model, and get into a model where we're proactive, predictive about rising risk and prevent um, a large percentage of those episodes to happen in the first place. An example would be, you know, if we look ahead a few years, a hospital at home model where, um, you know, patients get sent home um, the moment they present in an emergency room, a few hours later, they're in an ambulance going home rather than upstairs to a medical floor. Uh, a model like that, where rather than starting in the emergency room, if we could actually begin in the home itself and identify that that person is going to wind up in the emergency room and send a care team into the home before that admission happens and actually stabilize them and give them preventive care, uh, we think that both cost and hardship can be massively reduced. And so that's, that's our premise, um, starting with technology and over time with services. So Summit, on that point, you have been thinking deeply about the fact that people asking people to do things, touch things, wear things, doesn't work. Yeah. And you set out to solve that problem. Talk a little bit about that and where you're going. Um, th there's, there's only so much that I will be able to say, um, because, um, because we're not ready to, to tell the world about, about the how, but, um, that the answer is actually, um, something very elementary. We looked at, you know, how other industries have solved this problem of identifying risk. We looked at predicates. And great predicates exist in things ranging from home security to, to fire alarms. Um, when something is going wrong, the alarm goes off. And when that alarm goes off, somewhere somebody pays attention and gets you the help you need. And some of these models have been perfected over decades. And now when you install a home security system in your home, for example, you don't think about it. You can actually go to Best Buy and pick something up and bring it home. And it even starts learning your behaviors because you just plug it in. You don't even need an installation. And it starts learning about you. Well, our thinking here is that we turn that entire model on its head rather than about your property, your premises. We become a technology that senses you and your safety and health, your safety and well-being, and pick up important life signals the same things that you would pick up from wearables, but do it in the same way that home security alarms, um, home security sensors work so that people don't have to remember to put things on, turn them on, um, go measure something every day, one, one or two times a day or more frequently, that people don't have to remember to do that. Because, you know, ultimately, as I've said before, the novelty wears off and then people fatigue, and then they forget to do stuff, and then the entire program fails. And so the idea really is to take what we've already learned from these other industries and apply this to people in their homes or wherever else they may live. 
So, Summit, you, you use the analogy of home security, right? That is basically um, a passive kind of a sensing that's going on continuously, whether it's motion or video or something else like that. But we turn it on when we leave the house. Yep. Why would people want to, how do you deal with the issue of people leaving it on while they're in the house and being watched? Because that's a very different kind of concept. Of course. Um, one of the things when we launch our product, you will see is that we have been rapidly focused on privacy and rapidly focused on um, making this technology not creepy. Um, and that's the problem with cameras. And that's the problem with this kind of surveillance technology. Right. Um, some of my investors, some of my my colleagues, you know, constantly worry about, well, what if this gets in the wrong hands? Um, and, and the answer to to all of this turns out to be, well, there are just fundamentally um, important ways to solve the creepiness problem by building that into your system design so that people can't actually eavesdrop on other people. And of course, eliminating the camera. There is no camera in in how we're doing this. Mm -hmm. um, we are not watching you. Um, we are sensing important things about you that you've given us permission to sense. That's that's very interesting. I'm, it's going to be really fantastic to see how people accept this issue. It highlights a really interesting point that I'm going to ask both of you to address. Uh, at Accenture, we have been studying adoption of digital health technologies generally, not just limited to things at home. And what we've seen is in the last four years, effectively a plateauing of adoption rates. It had gone up in the first half of over the last 10 years, steadily every couple of years, and then it stalled at a at current level of adoption, notwithstanding the blip around telemedicine specifically for COVID. And when you get underneath it, the primary reason that people aren't using digital tools, so that's apps and wearables, pretty much the whole universe, the whole category. The first reason is a trust issue that they don't ultimately trust who has their data. That's the most common answer. More than a third of respondents say the reason they won't use digital health tools is because of trust. The other two reasons uh, that come up at the top are that if they have a bad experience with a digital technology, they're not gonna go back and use it again, which we know that from other kinds of consumer experiences. And then the third one is, if it's not part of the way the doctor works, they're not going to use it. So it has to fit into the doctor's workflow. One could argue that's why telemedicine went from 8% of all visits to 50% of all visits in the first part of 2020, because it was the only way doctors yeah. work, and so therefore forced adoption. But after, after it was no longer a requirement, you see things slipping back and no one really fundamentally addressed the trust problem or the usability and experience problem during the pandemic. We just forced the use of it. So given that perspective, first, Larry, this question is for you. I'm sure at some level you have seen this phenomenon happen of uptake and then plateauing. Um, how, how do you, when you look at a company, how do you think about whether or not this company is addressing some of these fundamental issues and are going to get, get the kind of persistent use and growth and not just sort of stall out because of the issues around things like trust and experience and workflow that seem to have held back the broader movement of digital technologies for consumer use? You know, Kavi, this is something I've been giving a lot of thought to. It, it uh, I spend a lot of time with very large self-insured employers who've really been on the forefront of adopting digital health technologies. And one of the things that I'm seeing now and hearing about is this program or app fatigue. Uh, 
Uh, and, um, and, and, and with that, the messaging fatigue that you get from, from apps. Uh, a friend of mine who left from a benefit manager at B of A who went to Fidelity, I remember him calling me on his first day up there. And he was telling me that they had adopted something like 35 digital health solutions. And he was commenting that many of them were dealing with the same person, the person who had a, you know, a, um, a high BMI. So they had sleepy because the person couldn't sleep. They had hello heart because the person had elevated blood pressure. They had uh, Omada because they wanted the person to reduce their sleep. They had Lavongo because they were a diabetic. I, I can go on and on, Kabe. But the point is, uh, and everybody was claiming the same results, and every one of them was sending messages to the uh, to the patient. So the employers tired, the patients tired, the the health plans tired. Because uh, the health plan, every time they integrate a new point solution, it costs a lot of money. And on top of that, to the extent they're trying to share that data with a provider, it just magnifies the whole thing. So I think there is this, this very real fatigue issue that we need to deal with. And I think it's going to usher in a, a real consolidation and weeding out of which programs are really effective. And you're going to see... Also, a further consolidation of the digital health solutions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Rand Rounds bought Doc on Demand. Uh, Teladoc merged with Lavongo. I mean, I, I can go down the list, and I think you're going to see it's going to it's going to uh, you're going to see a massive consolidation, and I think you're going to see solutions that are more complete, more consumer friendly, and greater accountability for engagement, and actually driving the resulting health impact. I don't know if that answers your, answers well, your question, Kave, but that, that's kind of what we're seeing. But I think you're bringing up a really important point around this plateauing. And, and, and I think until we address that, it's, it's going to continue to be a problem. So the consolidation, what I'm hearing you say, though, is that um, it's not just a financial roll up of businesses that will continue to run doing their own thing. It sounds to me like you would have an expectation that they would be actually moving from, let's say, three solutions to two solutions or three solutions to one solution if it's really going to create value in the long term. Uh, absolutely. And it's going to move from a more fee-for-service, you know, PMPM or PEAPM kind of reimbursement to something that's going to be more value-based. And the rubber really hits the road when you uh, go to value-based because you're actually accountable for the outcomes that you're driving. So I think we're also seeing the shift mm -hmm. to value in terms of the, the reimbursement arrangement for these solutions. So the way I interpret that is as an outsider, when I read a press release about these companies being acquired, the, the question in my mind isn't just what's the math of adding them, but what's the concept that's going to go from two to one or three to one? Because exactly. That's the long-term value. Okay. Exactly. That's very interesting. So, man, I want to, I want to go come back to you and I want to uh, shift the conversation about care at home from um, let's call it the common every day, like you described to really serious illness that you Previous to the current business, you were a founder of a hospital at home business that was built around the idea that people who showed up in the emergency room and absolutely positively were sick enough to be admitted to the hospital would be sent back home and you would reassemble the hospital in their home and take care of them there. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned from that, both in terms of how feasible this is, what it takes to get it done, but then how viable is it as a way of of working and where you see that going in the long run, because there's plenty of discussion about hospital at home 
as an important part of the future of how healthcare is delivered in the U.S. Probably a great, great question. Um, and, and as you know, we've we've spent a lot of time both thinking about and and testing various models. Um, you know, I'll I'll also at some point want to address your your adoption topic with a couple of data points. I'll come back to that later. But but on the they're related actually to what I'm saying about hospital at home. Um, but the hospital at home model ultimately you, even I alluded to you know a few years or, or some years out in the future maybe we'll be doing hospital level care in the home. And that really comes from the experience over the past many years testing this model in the real world with real health systems where ultimately the incentives to do that are misaligned. This is not a technology problem. Mm-hmm. We could move hospital level care for a huge number of uh, conditions where people wind up from emergency rooms upstairs in the medical floor. We could move a huge percentage of those out back into the home. And we could in fact become predictive and preventive as well that you know we can reduce those emergency room admissions. From a health systems perspective, however, when you do that, and when health systems get paid for heads and beds, that becomes a very, very dangerous slippery slope. And health systems are looking at this very carefully as any any other business would. Um, Health systems are cautious about the implications from their revenue. They're cautious about well, if this works, what does that mean for all these, all this physical plant that we have? What do we do with it? And and there are some health systems for whom that is absolutely not a problem. They'll they'll fill those beds anyway. And then there's a very large number of health systems, hospitals, for whom that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And so, you no, know, we think that the hospital at home model, while it's it's very intriguing from both a cost cutting. We, we showed that we could cut costs 18 to 40% per admission type. Um, but it's very intriguing from a cost-cutting perspective, and it's also very intriguing from a hardship perspective for the patient. Um, you could, in fact, move all the logistics around and deliver care in the home to patients and still do that more cheaply than you would deliver the same care in a hospital. Um, and patients would, would, of course, not be subjected to the isolation, the loneliness, the depression, the, the exposure to, to sepsis and, and, and infection, all that stuff you could reduce. But the business model, the business incentives to drive this change whole scale are not existent today. And I think that's the real issue. Yeah. Then, then from a, just back to the adoption point, you know, what, I, what I'll say is the technology to enable this kind of episodic care exists. And what we found is that people, when they're in an episode, are willing to put up with very different kinds of things than they're willing to put up in the rest of their lives. Um, things that might not be comfortable to wear, they're absolutely fine with. Things that might be you know, marginally creepy because they're now comfortable that their nurse, their doctor, some care, care provider can actually see them and talk to them. During episodes, the the, the the model is fundamentally different, even at home, mm-hmm. than it is for the rest of life. Um, ran a, an AARP survey when when I worked with you at Accenture. Um, ran two surveys actually, and the end re- results of those surveys told us that 
you know, only 42% senior, 65 and older, would accept a device with a camera in their bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, 96% of their kids would gladly buy it and put it there. Right? That was really <laughs> interesting. Um, we've also been working very closely with you know, our clients, ranging from Northwell to, to folks at Optum. And what we're finding is even for some of the episodic stuff, that wearables, even patients who have them for episodes that are, you know, say, 30 days long, um, we're being told that they're pulling the wearables off day two, day three. They don't want to wear them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's creating some real adoption issues for these programs that are dependent on that kind of technology, even for episodes. Yeah, very um, good. Right. Very good. Uh, gentlemen, we're at our time, so I'm going to close with one final question. It's a prediction question, so short answer. Do you think that the adoption or the movement of healthcare to the home is going to be driven more by the supply side, so what providers want to do and their needs, or the demand side, what consumers want? Larry? Yeah, I think it's going to be driven by consumers. I think that's going to be a pull. Uh, I think the providers are going to come along for the ride because they, they derive efficiencies from it, but I think it's going to be a consumer pull because it's the way they, they live their lives today. Very good. Summit? I wholeheartedly agree. Very good. Larry Leisure, Summit Nagpal, thank you for joining me and uh, have a good day and have a good event. Thanks, all. Thank you.